0: Uh, Let's see, so this is part three of our gospel series, and this is on who is Jesus. I've given another lesson on who is Christ, which sounds almost the same. I'm going to kind of combine some of the two of them, but the sheet you have is is who is Jesus. There's a lot of Bible reading in this one, like more than any other one. So get ready to read the Bible, because we're going to go around in a circle, and there's only a few of us, so you will read several times. If you're not comfortable reading out loud, then you can just ask to pass. So, um, I I would say this is the gospel. The reason we do this series, this was the first series that we ever did in what was the Bible study called MDDDS before it was examined. And we started with this because it should be that the gospel is where you start. It's the central uh, component of Christianity. And it should also be something that you know well enough that you could explain it to anybody. And uh, I think it's funny when you talk to someone who's not a believer and they have questions about Christianity, a lot of times what I'll hear people say is, you know, we need to get together. Let's let's get breakfast and let's let's study this and let's look at the Bible together. Like you'll hear that kind of be the conclusion of like a five to 10 minute kind of semi-argument or question asking session. But I don't know if that ever really happens. You know, you hear a lot of this, like, you know, we, we need to study that together. But like when that actually happens, I, I don't know how what percentage of the time it is, okay? You grew up a missionary kid, so you probably saw that actually happen. But I hear a lot of people say like, well, we need to talk more about that or, you know, Right, I want to learn more, but I don't know if it ever actually happens. And so I think sometimes it doesn't happen because in that moment we're not really equipped to answer the questions, and so it kind of turns into this thing of we kind of give our best version of what we think Christianity is, but we can't explain it like extremely well. I don't think it's that different from if someone came up to you right now and said, you know, describe the Krebs cycle to me. You'd be like, well, there's this, there's like a, there's like these acids, and they like. You know, I mean, I don't know how well you could explain it. Maybe better than I could, probably. Okay. But if you were sort of forced and there's like pressure on you to explain that, you would do your best, and it wouldn't really be that great. It wouldn't be that effective. You'd be like, well, let's get together. We'll talk about the Krebs cycle someday, and I'll get my notes, and we'll get together. You know, so but then that would never happen. Okay. So of the gospel, if it's you know if our Christianity is a big deal to us, we should be able to explain it, and not have to say, well, let me go get my book, and let me let me. Have you ever read this book? You should read that. Well, I'll send you a copy. You know, it should be. Should be able to, should come straight out of you. Like this is what the gospel is. This is why this is important. This is who Jesus is. This is what sin is. You know, you should be able to kind of peel that off. Okay. Um, The example I always use is is that if someone were to to say to you, you're a huge Harry Potter fan or huge Star Wars fan or whatever it is, and they said, you know, I don't really think Star Wars is all that good, or I don't really like Harry Potter, I think it's overrated. If you're a big fan, you're going to kind of like go into crisis mode, okay, (laughs) and you're going to start explaining why it's good. And not only is Harry Potter great film series is really the books are better and here's why and you know, so on and so forth. And your, your assumption is, well, they just don't know and let me tell them why. You could probably go 30 minutes on why Harry Potter is great if you really love it. Um, and that should be the same reaction we have if someone were to question Christianity or to throw out some version of the gospel that's not really the gospel. I saw Joel Osteen, there was a little clip of him this weekend talking about how when you're dressed nice and you do well at your job, that God is pleased, which is not true. Um, it's like the opposite of, you know, First Samuel it says that God sees the inside and man looks on the outside appearance. I mean, that's like biblical, um, but it's like that should like ring a bell and you should be like, that's not the gospel. This is the gospel, and here's what it is. So the point of this, I guess, in short, is it is a resource because I don't have all these verses memorized, but it should be something that very simply you can say, here's kind of the five parts of the gospel. We can talk a couple of minutes about each one. If you want to study more, let's do that, and I have a resource. I can mail it to you. I can email it to you. We can get together. That's kind of the point of it. So um, let's let's jump in. So I want to do a little bit of background on Jesus just from this this other lesson that that I had done in the past. Uh, We did the last couple weeks, we did Who is God? We looked at, and Michael did a great job with that and talked about all these different aspects of God's character. Um, We talked about Who am I last week? David did that. And basically that we're sinful. And so God, in in short, is holy. He is righteous. um, He is also loving and he's merciful. And because we're sinful, as a good judge, God has to punish that sin. So that creates this tension. And so then tonight's question of who is Jesus is what relieves that tension. Okay, That's the point of us studying this right now. I think some interesting things about Jesus, uh, you know, so Jesus is his his name, like Joshua, effectively, um, but his title was Christ, okay, so it wasn't like his last name was Christ, um, and Christ comes from the Hebrew word Messiah, which Messiah to Jewish people was a big deal, so Messiah meant the anointed one or the chosen one, and conservatively, there's about a hundred different predictions in the Old Testament about this future Messiah, so obviously Jewish people would have been uh, very aware of that. Um, we also look at, I think, one of the central questions of Jesus is, how could Jesus be fully man and fully God? So that's a real big kind of theological discussion and concern. Um, just a couple of things real quickly, and I won't go into all the detail, but Jesus had a human mother, he had a human body, he had a human mind, and he was like humans in all respects, except he was without sin. Okay, so that makes him different. Different. He was fully God. Uh, he is God, he's Lord, He is I Am, he's Alpha and Omega, he's King. We've been studying in our Sunday school on the different names of Jesus, and that's been a really, I think, exciting study to see all the different kind of aspects and flavors, if you will, or different names for Jesus. And effectively, I think the most important one is that he is God, and so understanding of the Trinity is really important. Um, but uh, you know, as Jesus the person, you have, you know not the second member of the Trinity, but Jesus the person who was on earth, he's both man and God, which is kind of like the weird Thing about Christianity that's different than other religions. Um, it's really important to understand that. And that's how he can actually act as the relief to this tension, which we'll get into more later. Um, so let's jump in here on your sheet. It says this is of Jesus' life. His life displays the righteousness of God. And we'll just, we're will just we going to jump in and read a lot of Scripture. And I think the nice thing about the Scripture is it's not me just saying it, it's, it's the Scripture that will speak for it. So I'll start with 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And then will will go to you, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Right, so, um, it, so the the life of Jesus, the thing, you know, he, so he's fully man, he's fully, fully God, and so the aspect of him that's fully man are the things like He had a human body. He had uh, temptation. He, um, you know, as a kid, he would have gotten sick. He would have tripped. He would have bruised his knee, things like that. Um, And so he was also tempted, but he never sinned. Uh, He displays the righteousness of God, meaning he is holy, but as a man, which is, is certainly a unique thing. And so it talks about how he is our high priest, meaning, you know, effectively, he's the one that goes between us and God, okay? But unlike the high priest... Uh, you know, back in the Old Testament time, uh, he's different than that, okay? And he did not sin, unlike a high priest would have. All right, so Jesus fulfills the law that we have all broken. So Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then Romans 8, 3 through 4.
1: For what the law...
0: you know, to to the Jewish people, the law was sort of seen as their salvation, or was a thing that could could save them effectively. So, in theory, if you could follow the law and you could do it really, really well, that would get you to a place of being righteous. Um, that could get you to a place of being whole or being justified. Uh, of course, that's not true, and so uh, it did take Jesus, something greater than the law, to to achieve that. Okay. Um, so, Jesus is fully God, which we did talk about a little bit, but we'll look at some of those verses. This is a long verse, the first night, and you get the long, several okay. verses. So, here we go.
1: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, he has came a witness to testify concerning that that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not that light. He came only as a witness to that light. The true light that gives light to every, everyone was coming into the world. He was in the, in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, uh, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth.
0: All right, and then, great job. Colossians 2.9. Uh, For in Christ all the world. Okay, so John 1, one of the best-known sections of Scripture, but it effectively establishes in a really beautiful way that Jesus was there for everything. Okay, so Jesus was with God from the very beginning. Jesus was responsible for uh, the creation of the universe uh, right along with God. And we talked about this when we talked about the Trinity, is this idea that, that the Spirit is sort of the result of the love between the Father and the Son, which I think is a nice way of thinking of that. Of course, effectively now the spirit is sort of the go-between, as it were, and the spirit lives inside of us, and all this. Um, but just the, the, the firmly accepted orthodox view that that Jesus has been around since the beginning. So Jesus was not created after the fact, or Jesus wasn't only, of course, created when he came to Earth. He's always been with the Father. Okay, so as the third, a second member of the Trinity, it, it, he is the Son. Okay, and when it comes to Earth, he becomes Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah. But uh, he's the second member of the Trinity. He's always been there. He's always been with God. And John 1 goes into the great detail of how he is fully God. Okay? And then the Colossians 2 says it a little bit more succinctly, that in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Okay, so then he is also fully man, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. That's me. Um, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then 1 John 4.2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come to flesh is from God. Okay, so uh, we'd already read this Hebrews 4.15, but... Um, which is basically that Jesus has been tempted in every way, um, and so if 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 he were just purely God, it wouldn't have been anything for him to be tempted or live this life or to suffer on the cross because he would have been infinitely power powerful over it, and so he intentionally took on a weak human body that was uh, had the potential for flaw uh, but then lived a, a life that was free from sin okay and so um you know, theologically he put himself out there on our behalf because it wouldn't have added up had he not been a man um, and of course it, the sacrifice wouldn't have made the cosmic difference that it made had he not also been God alright so it's that balance there alright so we'll get to this answer of the tension of the gospel so we talked about this tension of the gospel which is the tension that exists between a good judge that is God who is perfectly righteous who can't be in the presence of sin who's perfectly holy and then man, which is sinful, which is us. Okay, And so there's that tension. Is, is How can a good and loving God be righteous and holy in its judgment of sinful man? Okay, So there has to be a sacrifice or something to atone for us, something to stand in our place. So here's a blank. Uh, God's love sent Jesus to the cross. John 3.16. That's a new one, I'm sure.
1: For God so loved the world.
0: very verse. Uh, satisfying the wrath of God. Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Alright. And f- for our benefit. So God's love sent Jesus to the cross, satisfying the wrath of God for our benefit. And then as forgiven sinners, we can now be in the presence of Holy God. So Leviticus 16.
1: He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people, and take his blood behind the curtain, and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place, because of this Because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been, he is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Okay.
0: And then Hebrews 9, 24-28.
2: Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him.
0: Yep. And then on into Revelation 21, 3-4. through four. That's me. <laughs> and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Okay, so a lot to unravel there. And we can kind of go, each of these sections has a lot to say. And the Leviticus section is talking about this practice of taking a goat um, and... Uh, taking the blood and putting it over the doorpost, they would do this on the Day of Atonement. Um, obviously, we know the story from from Exodus of putting the blood of the lamb on the door to protect them as, as the angel of death passed by. Um, but then also this idea of just that in the old way, the, the the way that was governed by the law, you had to do these things over and over and over. Okay, and so that that bleeds into this Hebrews nine verse is that. You know, a priest would have to make sure that they were holy. They'd have to cleanse themselves. They'd walk into the Holy of Holies, which is actually into the presence of God. They would tie a rope around their legs and put bells on so that if they happened to sin or do something wrong or they weren't cleansed or they weren't holy, somehow they brought sin in with them effectively. They could pull them out, you know, after they died. You know, so this really, like, bizarrely, like, black and white moment, you well, know. They, they were killed if they Well, so that was the idea. So, yeah, that's like, I guess, in the details of, like, uh, you know, somewhere deep in Leviticus. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, they they would wrap a rope around their legs. And uh, I don't know if there's any, like, record of anyone actually doing that and having to pull them out. But it's it's both, like, um, a recognition on their part of how serious it was to to enter in the presence of God. um, But it was also sort of like, how do we get the guy out if he falls dead, you know, if he does something wrong? So... They'd put the bells on him so they would know if he fell over, and then they would pull him out with a rope. So I think there's a couple of recognitions there. It's it's this conversation about, I mean, how serious sin is and how much it does separate us from a holy God, and that if truly God is in that place and he's holy, there's all these things we go to in terms of cleaning it up and making sure that it's pure and making sure that ourselves are pure and that we send in the best of our best into his presence. But it's also this idea that we have to do this every year, you know, that the sin always follows us, okay? and that there's always blood that's a part of that cleansing. And so for Jesus, as our, you know, our greatest high priest, or our most high priest, he does this one time, and it's once for all, which is a really important concept, of course. And so it says, you know, otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. Uh, but all these sins that had culminated, he does away with once and for all with his sacrifice. <laughs> They're telling him to be quiet. You can't cry out there. Which means <laughs> they probably like pushed him off the bed. <laughs> um, I like to, it says that Christ you know, did the sacrifice once and for all, take away the sins of many, and he will appear, appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And then, of course, we have this Revelation verse, which is speaking of the time where we'll be reunited, which is great. Um, I love this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And I think in some sense, it's important to understand the old way of things has already passed away, so the the way of you know, the Jewish people under the Old Testament, that's passed away. But then, of course, when this all ends, and there will be a whole other passing away of the old things. Okay, so there's this idea of this cup of wrath we'll talk about a little bit, but the, the cup of God's wrath was thrust on Jesus in our place. So Will, I think, Matthew 26. Going a little farther, he fell his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. He did not as I will, but as you Okay, and then Isaiah 51, 17, and 22. Awake, oh, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have
2: jumped. Done- you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger, This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath,
0: you will never drink again. Okay. And then I believe, let's see, Revelation 16:19.
1: The great city
0: split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Okay, so we get this cup imagery, and there's a lot, you know, you can do a whole lesson on the the image of the cup or the goblet or this idea of this. I think of this sort of like, you, know, you think of like a king on a throne in some old movie with the enormous goblet. There's kind of like wine that's filled in it, and he's kind of, you know, sitting back and forth, and it's spilling out, that kind of thing. Um, and that's kind of the image, okay? But instead of there being wine in this cup, you can kind of think of it being like poison, okay, or something worse than poison, I guess. And I think that the real image is this idea that this cup that's filled with this poison that would kill anyone who drank it is God's righteous anger, okay, in response to sin. Okay, so it's filled up, you know, to the brim in this cup. And so when Jesus is in the garden, which one of these verses alluded to, what he's really most scared about and the reason why he's you know he's sweating blood you know they say this big droplets of sweat and he's so scared it's not necessarily because he's going to suffer on the cross and I think he's scared of that but I think it's really he's scared of this wrath this cup of wrath um it said in an earlier verse that these sins that it had accumulated for thousands of years that's what this cup is so when Jesus prays for this cup to pass from him that's really I think what his greatest tension and his greatest nervousness is about. And he asks, you know, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He's effectively saying, is there any way to get rid of this cup of wrath? Because I don't want to drink it. And you can hardly blame him for not wanting to drink it, right? Um, but of course, that's, that's the way that it works, okay? Um, it reminds me, actually, i have talked about Harry Potter already. I'm not the world's biggest Harry Potter fan, but I will talk about Harry Potter one more time. Um, and I think it's from... Is it the Half-Blood Prince? I think so. When uh, Harry and Dumbledore are in this like cave, and they're looking for these horcruxes. Is anyone a Harry Potter yeah, fan? I remember that. She, she points at Jared, like, so disappointed. Yeah, Jared is. I <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you're a Harry Potter fan. So you're with me here. Okay. So <laughs> they're having to destroy these horcruxes to defeat, basically, Satan, uh, you know, Voldemort. But... There's this one where uh, Dumbledore has to drink this disgusting, like, toilet water-looking stuff. Do you remember this? Mm -hmm. It's like that black water. Okay. Um, And that's basically this same story. And so he's drinking this on behalf of Harry so that Harry doesn't have to die, effectively. So he's drinking, and it's, like, hurting him. And I was watching this with Charlie... And there's parts in that where he's he's definitely too young to be watching. And he's reading through the sixth book, sixth book right now, and that's probably not ideal. But that part in particular, and you know, he's watching Dumbledore, this like lovable wizard that's been this basically the Jesus character effectively to to Hogwarts, like drinking this horrible poison and like going through all this pain, and then he starts like losing his mind. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of awkward, you know? Um, but that's basically this. And that's what I think of when I think of Jesus, you know, basically knowing he's got to drink this cup and he's got to drink it all down for us and uh you know Harry is having to kind of like watch him go through that and drink the cup that kind of harry has brought on himself effectively um it's kind of it's kind of sad so that's the image that i have at least when i think of this big goblet of poison and so and there's even some uh, some symmetry between that and on the cross where i don't know if we have the exact verse coming up but i think it is here in john 19 actually where uh, yeah, the gospel is a picture of Jesus taking the cup of God's wrath and drinking every single last drop. And so, before He says it's finished, He, he takes this last drink, and I think that imagery is is intentional. So let's read that, and then we'll talk about it. John nineteen thirty. Uh, when he had
1: received the drink, Jesus said, "It is finished." With that, He bowed His head and he gave
0: up Yeah, and then we'll read Romans uh, five nine. Yeah, so we're saved uh, from God's wrath because Jesus took the cup. He drank it up for us. Um, of course, it's through his, the shedding of His blood, just like the images of the sheep and the goats and all these blood sacrifices that were meant to cover sin, that were meant to wash over sin, but that it didn't last. It wasn't permanent. Okay? It didn't wash it once and for all. But then this idea here in Revelation 16, um, that uh, sorry, John 19, when He received the drink, Jesus said it is finished. And so that idea of Receiving the drink. Now, of course, the drink he's receiving is what—it's that sponge with the, the vinegar in it. Okay, um, and I think there's maybe even a prophecy about that. You know, um, wasn't
2: it like that kind of like numbs the pain or something?
0: Yeah, I think I I've heard, heard yeah, yeah I've heard something like that. That's why they give it to people. And it was you know you would, you would be dehydrated on the cross and things like that. Um, but I do think that image lines up on purpose. Uh, again, with this whole. Metaphor of drinking, and it's as soon as he drinks that, then you know he says it's finished, and so it's it's sort of like line up again, like all these Old Testament metaphors and ideas, and I mean obviously the the death of Jesus on the cross is is very similar to the idea of Abraham and Isaac and that sacrifice, and you know all these themes kind of come back again and they all line up uh, on purpose, and uh, I think that one in particular that drinking that last drop for us and then now it's finished and his job is done Um, so let's move on to this the resurrection demonstrates the power of God we'll read and then we'll talk a little bit about resurrection so Colossians 2 is that me yeah. I, I somehow lose track. I, I'm happy to read it. Col- Colossians two twelve to thirteen. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the ur- uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. So there's a lot in this, and it turns out that yesterday in class, Eric actually taught on resurrection and taught on this verse and kind of diagrammed real we in class. No kind of like diagram this verse, which was great. And I, I have it drawn out here, but I don't know that it's big enough for y'all to see. But, but there's a lot going on in baptism, and there's a lot in baptism that's meant to, ma- that, sorry, that's meant to uh, mirror uh, what Jesus did on the cross. And so um, on, on the cross and in the resurrection, uh, Jesus is victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And so it is through the cross, uh, and it's through baptism that we go from death which it's also our sin okay and it moves us on into life and forgiveness okay um, there's also this idea of circumcision and again circumcision is kind of one of these things that it, it was meant to to represent this promise but it was also meant to purify people but of course it's not like a permanent thing but in baptism it is a, not a circumcision of the flesh but of the spirit and so it is to say that when we physically go into the act of baptism We're raised up and we're sort of resurrected into a different life. And it's a life where effectively we've been circumcised of our old life, which is to say that we were kind of hindered down by death, okay, and sin, all right? And so our baptism sort of mirrors this, you know, Jesus dying and going into the grave and being resurrected again. Of course, it's like very, very like core Christian theology and imagery, and y'all know this, but it's really cool to see that all wrapped up and uh, kind of what that means. And I think understanding that and being able to explain that is, is really important, okay? And I think Eric did a great job of explaining it, probably better than I could. There's one cool thing he said, just as an aside, about how um, when Lazarus was raised from the dead and when Jesus was raised from the dead, he asked the question is, were those the same resurrections or were those different? So I'll, I'll pose that question to you. And he showed the verses, so it probably made it easier, but. Do you think they were the same, or were they different?
1: You know, was different. Like, mm-hmm. Lazarus didn't have the power
0: of Jesus, and that doesn't mean, like, to us, but Jesus did. Yeah. Yeah. Also, he had to, like, die again. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It was it a for Lazarus, he was the brother of... Yeah, of uh, Martha, of Martha I think. Mm-hmm. I guess Mary Martha's are sisters, aren't they? So I guess both. Well, just from yeah. like a, a time standpoint, he wasn't dead for as long as Jesus. What He's was actually he dead for a day longer. He's four day longer. four days. Yeah, and Jesus was three days. But dead, yeah. Yeah, and then I've heard that explained that I think like you have to be dead a certain number of days before you're really considered dead or something. So,
2: <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah.
0: The bird has ceased to exist, yeah. And the bird is no more. Um, so so, I think the big difference is, is that what you said is is that lazarus he was raised from the dead, he was resuscitated is what what Eric would say instead of resurrected because he still had the mark of death on him, okay, so he was still human in that way when Jesus raised from the dead, he was glorified, he was now you know effectively fully God, he still had a human body, he still you know he could fill the holes in his his wrists he could be there but he could also like appear in rooms that were locked you know there's something different about him but more importantly he wasn't held by death any longer okay so death could not hold him the way that John writes it in that book like just from
2: a literature perspective or whatever is that when Lazarus is raised from the dead he comes out of the grave like wrapped in his like a mummy you know like he's still wrapped in all of that cloth but when Christ when they find the tomb his, those, gar- like those cloths are all still there and he comes out like not you know there's no death on him
0: so it is to say that, that a sign of who we are before baptism is that we're sort of wrapped up you could say in the cloths of death Okay, and that uh, sin is sort of a sign of death in a way Okay, and so Lazarus was still in that and they had to cut it off of him which is kind of funny Whereas Jesus was, was free. Yeah, so yeah, there is that circumcision imagery, which we're uncomfortable with because, you know, Lord circumcision's like, you know, anyway. Um, Eric said he was teaching this at a youth group event, and so he heard, overheard some like eighth, ninth grade kid lean over and say, What's circumcision? They're so like, Great, you know, we've got to go through that. Um, but it's a spiritual thing, It's it's a freeing up of, you know, death effectively. Okay. So, um, in that, as I said, Jesus is victorious over sin, death, and the grave, and uh, he has crushed the snake. So there's this imagery from Genesis 3 about how the snake would uh, you know, basically bite the heel of who's Jesus, and that Jesus would crush the head of the snake. And so that's you know, basically his biting of the heel is him dying on the cross, but the crushing the snake is that through that death, he raises you know, to life, and he is the, the relief to that tension that exists between a holy God and, and sinful man. Okay, So this is the gospel. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in response to the tension between holy God and sinful man. So I have a quote that I will read in conclusion. This is from Wayne Grudem. This is, um, we do these 20 questions. I think we do like eight of them this year or whatever. It's just a real intro theology book with some great questions. But on this section on who is Christ, what's that? Oh, sneezing? That was a sneeze? It like was a silent <laughs> sneeze. It was totally silent. Yeah. It was a very polite sneeze. Yeah, I like it. I was, I was but this kind of summarizes um, who Jesus is, and I think it's a good place to end tonight, and then we'll, we'll stop and discuss a little bit. But in the person of Jesus, God physically entered into the world. An infinite God came to live in a finite world. The one who knew exactly how things were supposed to be came to a place where things obviously weren't. In Jesus, God and man became one person, a person unlike anyone else that the world has ever seen or ever will see. Jesus Christ was and forever will be fully God and fully man and one person, and that one person changed the course of history forever. Okay, so I will pause.